Like I, if I miss you, like, like now people outside of their household aren't able to hug a loved one. So what I do is that, you know, when the sun is rising here in the morning, I think about specific people and I'm like, please, you know, father, son, when you see such and such, carry this hug to them that they may feel this hug and may feel, you know, enlivened and uplifted as if I hugged them for real. And that person on the other end of that hug will feel it. Episode 42 with Inpul Kamut. Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we are all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing and assistance to each other. We will be having conversations to expand your consciousness, help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matter, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by Finnish fusion artist Axel Tesloff and his song Reincarnation. Before getting into today's program, I would like to extend my deepest appreciation to you for listening to these conversations. I am producing this podcast as a way to share information about life beyond the physical because I believe that this kind of understanding can profoundly enrich our life, help us heal the hurts from our past and create a more connected, peaceful and loving future. But of course, information alone is not enough. We need to practice, experience and integrate those experiences. A lot of the people I interview provide some kind of opportunity through courses, coaching or workshops for you to experience their various offerings. And if anybody you hear on this podcast resonates, I encourage you to follow your guidance and learn some new techniques from them. Apply them in your life. I am also offering some really practical workshops online from time to time with a focus on energy work and the out-of-body experience. If you want to stay in the loop about upcoming opportunities to train with me, I invite you to like my Facebook page, Multidimensional Evolution, which is where I will be notifying any events. Otherwise, if you want to show your support to this podcast, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Multidimensional Evolution, Personal Explorations of Consciousness. If you're into the topics discussed here, I promise you will enjoy the book too. And now on with today's guest. Before we get into today's episode... I would like to let you know of an exciting opportunity if you want to go deep into the projection of consciousness. The world's most comprehensive book on the projection of consciousness, or the out-of-body experience, is Valdiviera's Project Theology. It is also very large and quite technical, which can make it confronting to tackle by yourself. This is why a group of Consensiology volunteers are running a book club where you can read the book as part of a community and participate in monthly talks and discussions with long-term researchers and instructors of the subject matter. By joining this study group, 
you will be studying the world's most comprehensive treaties on the out-of-body experience, have access to monthly online meetings with experienced instructors and long-term students of these topics who can answer questions and help you deepen your understanding and experiences, be given new techniques every month and the inspiration and group accountability structure to practice them at home, and connect with a community of practice from around the world with a shared interest in exploring multidimensionality in a non-mystical, scientific and applied way. The group starts on 20 March 2021. For more information, go to bridgebookclub.icons.org That is bridgebookclub.icons.org My guest today is Los Angeles-based autodidact and polymath Inpu Kamut. I invited Inpu to speak with me for this podcast after being a student in a training program at which he was a master teacher. That training program is called Heal Thyself and is specifically for people racialized as white to help us unpack our internalized racism. And it is a program I would highly recommend. Among other things, Inpu gave a fascinating lecture on the way ancient Egyptian and other African knowledge has been edited out of our dominant historic narratives. This is something I thought would be of interest to listeners to this podcast. You will hear a wide-ranging conversation in which Inpu offers a revisionary view of history and the role of Africa in the worlds of spiritual traditions. He discusses African culture in America and how it has survived several centuries in a deeply hostile environment, and makes a powerful case for the importance of remembering our ancestral heritage so we can develop real universalism and expand our capacity to connect and unify with people across the world. If you're interested in OBEs and psychic perceptions, make sure to stay till the end when Inpu shares some really practical uses of these faculties that he enjoys in his everyday life. Inpu Kamut is an inspiring speaker with a rich and diverse background of learning and experience. He is a founding member of an association of independent Kemetic priests, priestesses and monks. As a Kemetic priest, he has provided spiritual and psychosocial counseling, house blessings, rites of passage and other traditional African spiritual services for many people on the east and west coasts of the U.S. Seba Inpu incorporates Tai Chi Chuan, Taoist, Hatha, Kundalini and Pranayama Sema, and Rek Hati Kemeti, the Kemetic Mind Science, which is a traditional meditation and healing system. He also includes massage to work with individuals in clinical settings as a mind-body health consultant, self-applied health enhancement methods, practitioner and alternative health practitioner. He is also a poet and a high-conflict community mediator. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Inpu, really, thank you for coming on and talking to me. I'm really looking forward to this chat. Um, and for those of you who are listening, who uh, uh, I would straight away suggest that after listening to this conversation with Inpu, if you haven't uh, listened yet, go back through this podcast and look at uh, my interviews with Bridge Felters, because that's how I got to know 
about Impu. And um, one of the things I really would like us to get into because I was so, uh, it really inspired me was the, the lecture you gave in Pruett, the workshop at the, the Heal Thyself training course that you run together with Bridge, that Bridge coordinates, uh, was that, that lecture about the revisioning of uh, Egypt in particular and Egyptian uh, knowledge and scientific understandings and achievements as really being integrated with Africa and how that perspective has been so um, essentially corrupted by the European attempt to sort of incorporate Egyptian knowledge uh, or claim it on the one hand and even to, dis to dismiss it on the other and just forget that it actually influenced so many of the European scholars. So, Very much so. First off, uh, you know, Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I've been looking forward to it since uh, you invited me. So I'm glad to be able to share with your audience. Yeah, and I'd like to, what I'd like to do before we go into, into that kind of topic, there's obviously something you've studied a long time, is just to get a bit of a better understanding of yourself, you know, your background, like you've got such a diverse background. And I might actually, I don't normally do this, but I might just read a little bit that I got from, <laughs> from the workshop because I think that'll give us different pieces to, to run with, to, to explore a bit better. So, um, so Inpu, you have an associate, you've, you started an association of independent kemetic. Am I saying that right? Kemetic or is it kemetic? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, that's right. No, Kemetic is fine, yes. Kemetic Egyptian priests, priestesses, mm -hmm. and monks. Uh, you incorporate Tai Chi Chuan, Taoist, Hatha, Kundalini, and Pranayama Yoga, as mm -hmm. well as Rek Hati Kemeti, uh, yes. uh, which is a traditional meditation and healing system, mm -hmm. and massage to work with individuals in clinical settings. So you work mm -hmm. as, as a, as a mind-body healing consultant. Yes. Um, you also, I just learned from our chat before we started recording, obviously actively farming or, or growing, you know, you, you, do, you do some kind of uh, working with the land. Uh, yes. And also you're a high conflict uh, community mediator. Yes. And I think I'm, there's I'm quite a few also. other strands in your life <laughs> as well. Yes, sir. Uh, father of five. You know, very proud of that. Three college graduates thus far. So one senior and one fourth grader, you know, one still in primary. So I'm proud of, proud of them. And then, you know, just, uh, you know, active in the active and supportive in the, the cultural arts community here in the Los Angeles, where I, I call home. And then active, you know, across the country in terms of my mediation work. Yeah. You know, so... Just those pieces and then really working, you know, I'm a very uh, staunch advocate for um, uh, indigenous uh, midwifery practices. So I spend a lot of time working with uh, local midwives. And it all it all integrates rather, rather nicely, though. <laughs> mm. No, it sounds like a lot, but it's really it's really one life. Well, it, I mean, the, the essence of a lot of that for me seems to be about connection connection between mm -hmm. people and connection between us and the land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very much so. 
I mean, so like I, I got a house, I have, it had lots of trees. And so most of the trees were fruit bearing. So there's one that I really enjoy. It's called, uh, colloquially, it's called uh, gaviota, uh, not gaviota, uh, pineapple guava. And it's neither. It's not pineapple. It's not guava. It's like a lower central South American tree that, uh, that is a kind of tart. It has a tart flesh with a sweet interior. So it's, it's a fruit. It's almost like a, it reminds people of kiwi. If you can, if you can, in terms of texture, and in terms of it's not furry on the outside though, but in terms of the internal texture of the fruit. So that's one of my my favorite fruit. And I've got a, a an avocado tree and a a fig tree. Right. And so I got those, and then I've got a, a collard green tree, which is uh, from uh, collard greens being from uh, all over Africa. And so it grows like a bush, just like a tree. And they can be anywhere from up to 15 feet high once it gets to be fully grown. So matter, I uh, no, can't see it, but it's actually right over my shoulder here, part of it. You might be able to see in the background there. And yeah. the gaviota tree is, is right here over this shoulder. Through that window. Okay, so that's pretty big. Yes, through, through this one. That's the gaviota. Yeah. Wonderful fruit. And that, that's the, the gaviota is the one we were talking earlier before we started this about dealing with uh, the relationship to fresh water and uh, dry farming and the relationship to the land and the water and the interrelationship that or the homeostasis that certain places have that abundance was possible without watering. And so that, you know, you'd have this abundance that would occur just from the natural rain, the natural water cycle. And, yeah. and so, and the changes that come about as a result of, uh, the, 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 you know, the shift in terms of uh, population and cultural practices. Mm. And can you give us a bit of a background of how, so right now you live in Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, have you always lived in Los Angeles? Born and raised, born yeah. and raised. I've had, I had the good fortune of being able to travel from about the age of eight. So I've seen a good deal of the world. Uh, unfortunately, during most of my youth, uh, Africa was uh, very difficult to get to. I was raised with a single mother, and, and so it was. Uh, we didn't. All, whenever we planned trips to Africa, the places we were planning to go, there were challenges. So I have been able to get to some parts of Asia, some parts of Europe, North America, Mexico, and parts of Central and South America were off. I won't say off limits, but a lot of violence was occurring due to uh, American uh, meddling in the 80s and 90s. We were doing a lot of our traveling. So, so this was you were traveling with your mother. Your mother was traveling with yes. you at the time. Yeah, primarily was traveling with my mom, my my brother, and some other family. Yes. Yeah. And so I got to see a great. I mean, just some amazing things that really helped to put the world in perspective for me. I'll give you an example. Uh, in 1989, wow, okay, that temple doesn't even exist. Here. So in 1989, the United States was celebrating the 200th anniversary of its constitution. Right. <laughs> you know, without acknowledging that it's based on the, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy and the, and the other piece. But when we get to, when I'm, so I'm visiting Seoul, South Korea. Yeah, right around the time, right before the celebrations are occurring. And we're in Seoul, South Korea. And at that time, there was standing there a temple, a, a Korean Buddhist temple, 
that had been built, I want to say 600 years before. And the, the lacquering or the, the staining of the wood, the technique that they had used had already been forgotten. <laughs> so they didn't know how to preserve wood like this. It was all wood. And it was from, I think, 1311 or 1289. It was this Buddhist building built. And so I'm and, you know, marveling at the fact that in the middle of modern Seoul, you have this 600-year-old building. And it's dominated by all, the West, all this Western culture. And we're just really celebrating a 200 kind of as an American we're celebrating 200 years. And that, that said, that said a lot for me and, and it just really had, and to show you how difficult it is, is that in the last maybe 15, 20 years, uh, there was a, a Korean Christian zealot who burned that temple down. Oh, wow. So it doesn't exist anymore. And so it's just, it's kind of weird, you know, that, you know, kind of how, folks westernized and what it means to westernize. And in the course of that, they lose the essence of something to have a different spiritual practice or even a different religious practice. It's another thing to kind of burn away your heritage. Yes. You know, so that, that was that one that hurt me personally. It was like a world loss. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It kind of fits in with. So, the, so those are the kind of things. The, it reminds me of so many things that were like the, the ancient, uh, the, like the, the writings of the Mayan and other Mesoamerican people that were burnt by the Christians. Uh, yes. It does as well as, you know, like, see for me, it's like, you know, when I was eight years old, I got really introduced to Kemet because the Tutankhamun exhibit came to Los Angeles and I was just, enamored and at that point i was like my interest in africa my interest in anything that had to do with Canada, egypt was just started at, at eight years old and from that point forward everything i was just want to know everything about them the people the history. and then i had a chance to travel so we went to the louvre so i got a chance to spend time at the louvre and got to go through there and see its antiquities and the things that it had there, the British Museum, when I had a chance, was in, was in uh, London, had a chance to see some of the things, uh, African things that were there, as well as uh, other cities here in the United States that had different museums. And I was raised, uh, my, I lived three houses away from the neighborhood library. So one of the ways that I learned that what a city, what a local community, how they viewed the people was the kind of research you're, you're cutting out a little bit there, Inpu, but I think, I think you're saying that the libraries are the important this is sort of a reflection of how community treats its people, yeah? Yeah. Yes, very much so. And you see these, when you have a wonderful, beautiful library and you have these other techniques that, you know, you can see that they, they want their people to be well-read. They want their people to have access to information you know, you really appreciate those places and cities and you look at how they treat the people in other ways. And for me, the library tells everything about those particular communities. Mm. 
Yeah. And so traveling the world got to really teach me those, that and the parks and who has access. And also, you know, who has water, frankly, to bring it back to what we talked about earlier. But, you know, when you see someone with a big, huge fountain in their, their front yard or, their, the, the, or at the library, if it's at the library and there's a beautiful fountain, you know that that's for the people. You know, when it's, you know, in a lot of bunch of private spaces behind fences, you know that those are the people that control things in that community because water and the control of water, I look at as a, a way of demonstrating someone's demonstrating an outward display of power and control. It's mm, a really interesting point. Yeah. It brings up, brings up memories of, as you were talking, I remember um, traveling in, in France and there's been lots of sort of community fountains, like in public places, drinking water mm-hmm. in the public place. Yes. And looking at it from mm-hmm. that context, that's really interesting. Um, I, I, I have a question. I, I'm, this might sound uh, kind of silly, but it's something I've really noticed is, is that in my mind, when I thought about African-American people, mm-hmm. I never, I, even though it is in the name, I kind of missed the Africa <laughs> part. And I just kind of saw people, I saw I saw people as black Americans, right? This is uh-huh. like, and this is some, uh-huh. somebody growing up in Europe, not really, I only visited America very briefly, but mm-hmm. so from the movies and so on, that's where a lot of my images is from. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the black people in the movies are Americans. And this, mm-hmm. this whole connection to Africa, it's really been through the course, actually doing that Heal Thyself course, where it really like, you know, seeing how you, and for all of you who, all the teachers, it seems to be such an important link. And I went, of course, you know, you're African people who happen to be in the yes. United States of America now. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious, like in your upbringing, you know, was that something that was conscious? Were you, was that something that was, you, there was, a, you know, awareness? You obviously spoke how that, you said how it spoke to you going to the museum and seeing uh, the Egyptian exhibits and maybe other African exhibits. Mm-hmm. But in terms of your, you know, raising at home and so on, was there a consciousness of? Oh, very much so. Origin? Very much so. Mm-hmm. I mean, having the library on the corner was important. So like, you know, my mom, we, we, uh, she would say that even if you never leave Los Angeles, you can travel the world. The library is right here. So, when you get an opportunity to do go someplace, you'll know something about the place and the culture and the people and the history and the stories. So that was the first part. And because we never actually had a chance to go directly to Africa, even though we planned, so we'd read up on where we, we were planning to go first. But beyond that, I mean, it was in the culture, it was in the way we went to church, the, the different traditions that we had, that uh, my family is a family of, uh, of farmers that we owned land everywhere we've gone, even when we had to pick up and leave with nothing. You know, so uh, part of the re- my family's from a, a part of uh, the United States called uh, Northeastern Louisiana, right on the Texas border. No, it's just, don't worry about the geography. But it was uh, the deep south. And my family, uh, my great-grandfather was uh, on, on land, farm family on land on both sides. And they were threatening to lynch him. And they'd already lynched his two older brothers. And lynching means they were going to hang him by a rope till he was dead because they didn't like him. Basically, they wanted the land and he wouldn't sell. And there was other things involved, but that's a piece of it. 
so he moved and he left. And so we left with nothing and came to Los Angeles. And each generation had to deal with different aspects of the machine. So when my, my, my mother's parents, they lost, uh, they got, a, what is it? It's called eminent domain. I don't know what they call it down there. When the government takes your property for uh, civic works, they built a school on the land where their house used to Compulsory be. Compulsory acquisition here, yeah. Okay. 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 Yes. So that was, so they did that and they did that more in uh, black American communities and other communities. So they lost that and they got another place. And so just learning through this, learning the story of my family, I learned how, you know, lots of uh, priests, lots of healers, lots of uh, community healing, lots of uh, people in the family taking care of community, uh, lots of entrepreneurship, business ownership, community connection, so those things were always present, and I was always around that, always with my, my grandfather was both a, a master mason and a, a pastor, uh, very involved with the local law enforcement. So I got to, I was with him every day until he passed, and his wife was an evangelist. And at that time, when a woman was called an evangelist, it meant that she, women at that time were not allowed to be preachers in the particular tradition that I grew up in. And because of that, so she could open the church she could run a church. She just couldn't preach in the church <laughs> because they had this rigid interpretation of, of scripture. And, and so she had some particular gifts that she shared and some ways of living that were traditions that go back to Africa in terms of uh, we call it a geophagy or microphagy or the eating of the clay. Uh, some of those things, some of the telling young people what their gifts are and training them up and how to use them using the role of grandparent to instill the culture into the, the next generation. And so my, I had that both with my grandmother and my grandfather. And so and that's what it, it came from them. And then my mom helped and then my aunts and uncles helped. I learned martial arts initially from one of my uncles who started you know, teaching me, uh, a variation of what basically African-American forms of uh, uh, boxing. Right. And so it's not, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a style similar to what folks that they would recognize it as somewhat more like a, what Floyd Mayweather does that particular style of boxing with the high shoulder and some other things, but it's a, a cultural practice along with some other behaviors. So for me, and then I grew up and my family always lived near each other, like many African families do. So we were less than, you know, most of us were walking distance from each other. Even now I'm walking distance from my mother, walking distance from my aunts and some of my cousins. So, you know, the goal is to create that kind of that compound or that close family living that is also mutually supportive and mutually aiding so that you don't have to really rely like I didn't have like I mean I had uh, friends outside of my relatives, but it wasn't until it wasn't until college that I really had anyone who wasn't a who was a real friend that wasn't a relative, mm -hmm. you know. And you know my exposure was was also very similar. I went through rather tumultuous times, and the I was also close to the librarians because again we had programs at that time at the library, and so my uh, all the librarians the head librarians at the library in my three houses away where the head librarian was always a black woman. And at the time we had a white woman who was assistant librarian and a Chinese woman who was assistant librarian. And so the two, so the three of them 
it kind of encompassed my, you know, a good portion of my life. So I learned initially, I was about to learn uh, Mandarin and Cantonese from the, the, the Chinese like li- librarian. So she just saw my interest and they started feeding my interests and they were then shaping my interests. And so they would have me look at whatever my, they would. So I spent a lot of time in the library reading and studying and, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and so my mother had us in the library a lot as well. So one summer, you know, I read the, as a result of a lot of the work that my mom had us do, one summer I read the Underbridge Dictionary, you know, just because it's like, <laughs> you know, you know, the big, the big thick one, the big thick one, you yeah. know, you know, the, the Oxford. Yeah. It was like, I, you know, I took, I took a year. I mean, I didn't have nothing like I wasn't going to be in there anyway. So, you know, I had an opportunity to do that. And because over so many years, I'd read the different versions of the encyclopedias. So I was just like, it was just like a, a, a where, you know, for me, the library is like a warehouse of knowledge and information. And, you know, because it was at one point my mom was a single mom, so we were latchkey kids. So we went to the library. The library was <laughs> like daycare, I guess, you know, or after, yeah. after school care. And so, you know, for my, my brother and I, for a number of years, you get your schoolwork done and then you're in the library. Well, we're here, let me, you know, and the thing that I, that I talk to a lot of other educators about is up until 14, math and science books for children are awesome. They are fun. They're engaging. They've got pictures and diagrams that make you want to read it. And then somewhere around high school, it becomes, they take all the pictures out <laughs> and it becomes all text and it becomes dry and it's not fun anymore. Yeah. You know, and I always said that, dude, I don't think they want people to learn this. You know, <laughs> I, I literally think they don't want people to learn it because anything that you really, uh, you know, are, are turned on by is easy for you to learn it. You know, it excites the passion in you and you just get interested in it. And so for me, the library was like the source or the root of that. I, I mean, I learned how to research because I'm there with the research librarian. You know, hey, well, what about this? Well, how about that? And what if I'm interested in? And they would, you know, so, I, you know, I learned the, uh, the categorization systems. And then that ended up being my first job in that same library. Right. So yeah. that's, you know, so that's really where it started. And that's when I could learn about it and read up on all these different stories and histories and the history of psychology, the history of, of sociology, the history of, you know, how philosophy shifted and became all these other sciences, all that stuff I got at the library, as well as the biographies, the autobiographies, the stories of the different nations and how they came about and reading the encyclopedias would get me interested in different cultures because it give the names of the different countries. And then you could, then you'd go deeper. Yeah. And he was like, oh, well, how'd that get there? And so then I got interested in uh, what, the, you know, the Holocaust, of slavery, you know, because I knew my, I know my family history back to like 1852 in this country. So I know roughly where my family in Africa was taken from. So that affords us a different, you know, affords me a different story than a lot of my fellow uh, African-Americans or, or black American compatriots because many of them don't have the records or the history to be able to say that we come from here and more than likely our families came from this region. Yeah. And that's before DNA, yeah. before DNA stuff. And that's, that can be really 
uh, my experience, at least here, working with Aboriginal people in in Australia, is though there is you know also plenty of families because there was a lot of dislocation of people. They were picked up yes. by, and then put into reserves and missions and so on uh, in different parts of the state and sometimes in, even in other states, usually within certain states. And families where there is no where people where they find it hard to trace it back, there seems to be a lot of pain. Um, it seems to be very is very painful that that lack of, yes. of knowledge. I'm trying. I, I sometimes get uh, New Zealand, uh, New South Wales, and, and Australia mixed up. But there was a film called uh, Rabbit Proof Fence. Yes, I don't know if you're aware. Cause that was Aust- was that Australia? That's set in Western Australia. Yes, in the state of Western. Okay. Australia. See, there we go. See, yeah. So I see. Yeah, so the resident uh, reservation schools and whatnot. So I thought it was Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a chance. I've been exposed to some pieces of that too, and it's a very similar story. You know, it's just it and it's not just that it's not the pain that really that that drives it, it as much as it is the it's almost like you you hit a dead end you know what i mean it's not just, it's not the pain it's the dead end it's that really that's that's it this is it there's, you know there's this mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of times where spirituality comes in where if you have the traditional practices you don't need the DNA serves as an external validation of what the the spiritual practice may reveal, you know, through it. So in, in Australia, it's sort of like the, how the dream time and the story is around what dream time and the way folks access that. And that's the reality. And this is just kind of the, the marketplace or the, ex, the exchange where different things happen, where people learn, but that if you have access to the dream time, it gives you more access to the truth. Yeah, I would actually, I'd like to circle back to that around dream life because I was, I was curious about um, your, your relationship to that. But um, maybe before that, so then if we talk about the spirituality, you, you uh, mm-hmm. connected with or you've created this... Uh, connected comedic, with. Comedic I, I did not create it. Hey? Yeah, no. Uh, okay, yeah. So the, the Comedic Ahan Sama Association. The association, yes. Yes, yeah, um, yes. I'm, I'm the founder of the association, but the practices for which I'm a priest, I did not found. That, no. that I was initiated and taught. And so that was a different process. Okay. But could you talk a bit about, is that a lineage that uh, arises out of, out of Egypt? How, how did your connection to that come about? Okay, so, so my, I first learned about uh, Kemet as a spirituality way of life practice when I ran into a a practitioner who uh, ended up becoming one of my best friends in my life, uh, Dr. Uh, Harukuti, who you met in the, in the Heal Thyself program. Yes. So uh, he and I became friends ooh, almost, well, several decades ago. <laughs> and I learned about the practice and learned about the particular temple that he was a part of and began studying, uh, part of study group, and uh, through the process learned this particular martial art that I teach, uh, Tai Chi Chuan, uh, Qigong, and the meditation, the meditation systems, as well as the yoga, and was then later initiated into that system. And it's a syncretic system, but it, it has its roots coming over with some of the, some of the folks who uh, preserved the traditions coming over and through the Middle Passage. 
and other aspects are through a direct relationship with uh, what the so-called the nature as they're called right. or the the forces of energy directly yeah and maybe just in, for people if somebody doesn't know syncretic means that it combines a number of different strands right yes so, yes it so does, in this case they're, they're, you talk about tai chi and and yoga which is from uh, i guess china and india um well again no no they're they're african okay. actually i mean and that's that's the that's the challenge is that so uh qigong and, and tai chi chuan as well have their roots in the practices of the, the camites and the same thing with uh acupuncture uh cupping some of the other pieces you know I, so they were held on and preserved and enhanced in India, in China. And there's a repository of that information that occurred at a healer's conference that happened about, I want to say, 600 CE in Tibet, where uh, like one of my elders, who is a, a Tibetan lineage holder, talks about the healing traditions and how all of those folks actually came over to Tibet and that there are actual scrolls that chronicle the conference, the healing conference and all of the different healing methods and modalities and techniques that were used. And so syncretic in the sense that we're returning and bringing all the pieces back together that have been, uh, that were taken apart. And so we have some of the systems, some of the meditation systems are inherent that were kept the Tai Chi Chuan, Qigong, and the yoga, excuse me, some parts are indigenous, some parts we added in from the other traditions to bring them home. And then, as like I shared with you before, uh, I continue to incorporate the things that I'd learned, like from my family, sort of the indigenous African, African-American uh, boxing style, you know, some of the footwork that goes along with that. And, you know, it's... it's uh, there's a, a, a real tradition around uh, maintaining, preserving uh, African traditions of uh, martial arts, even down to say like this bangle that I have here on my wrist, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, certain techniques were not shared with us uh, so that only, I mean, someone could make something close to this, but you can tell whether or not someone was African-American or African who made, who made it, or it was someone who tried to make a knockoff and is not from the tradition and the culture. Right. And so there are certain secrets of, of, of uh, within all the different fields that we have kept as a way to hold on to the culture. And, and that's part of the challenge behind using the word uh, slave or enslaved is that the people really, I mean, they were forced to work, yes. But in terms of what you would mostly think that they took everything away from those people, that that part's not true that they kept a great deal of their traditions alive, a lot of the culture, the, the hierarchical structures in terms of uh, how to organize a community. And that they, you know, we, con they, we constantly uh, fought back and tried to be free and tried to find ways to live uh, peaceful, peacefully uh, away from a lot of the violence. And, and that is, uh, you know, at, at the core of what, of what really happened for a lot of us. We just wanted to live free, <laughs> you yeah. know, and yeah. practice our culture. And so the, with, with that and the fact that, you know, within families, within groups, you'll have 
four or five different ethnic groups or different uh, tribes in, in one family now. You, you know, our folks found ways to uh, bring together those different traditions as a result of uh, survival of the practices and the culture. And so in doing that, they look a little different here than say someone who was uh, a practitioner of Ifa or Yoruba from Benin or from Senegal. They're gonna look a little different, uh, even a little different than it is in Brazil or Cuba. Yes, of course. Here in the United States, maybe different. And that's just because of the circumstances and history. So when I say syncretic, I'm including those pieces as well. Okay. But that when you see the when you see the, the the ritual or the practice, you can see. Oh, I know what that is. Okay, that's this. Yeah. 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 I mean, I there's so much there's so much in that we've just shared. I think that that story of survival uh, is a really big piece because there is. Uh, the, the the colonial lens, and by that I mean the narrative that Europeans, we as Europeans, apply, is an ongoing process, right? It, it started right from the beginning. It justified colonialism um, in terms of describing certain people as lesser. So we had we were justified in taking the land and taking the people and taking the resources. But in the present, what I'm finding here in Australia. And it's, I think it relates to what you just said as well, is that we forget there's this constant idea that, well, the indigenous people now, well, they've, they've assimilated. That's the word that's often used here. They've assimilated into the culture. They've lost their culture. Mm -hmm. There's this continuous narrative of loss and that whatever we mm -hmm. see now mm -hmm. isn't really authentic, authentic cultural expression and so on. And, and, you know, as I said, I, I hadn't even made the link between Africa and African Americans in that sense, in that cultural sense. And I, I can imagine that even applies to a lot of white Americans uh, who don't. Well, well and, and a lot of African Americans. Is, there are a lot of folks, you know, I'm, I'm and, and, you know, well, because they see themselves as white. They don't see themselves as having ancestry that takes them back to Western Asia or what folks call Europe which is, you know, in itself a misnomer, you know, because, you know, really, and I was talking with my son about this and he's like, hey, you know, he, Baba, I'm like, yes, son, there's no separation between North America, Central America, and South America. It's one contiguous land body. I was like, yes, that's true. He said, well, how are they separate continents if it's just, <laughs> if, it, if it's just one landmass? I said, that's, that's true, son. I said, however, the school was going to say that there are two continents connected by an isthmus. So, you know, call it what it is. You know, Europe and Asia are connected, but there's no, there's no, no, no separation, you know, but they, except that in order for them to create the separation, they had to do that. So that way we were then able to get a Middle East. And so a lot of that really is just that cis heteropatriarchal, you know, settler colonial business around addressing their uniqueness and their desire to be special as a way of promoting superiority. And that, that's been the challenge is that, you know, if, and, and by saying that, I mean that they became Christian or Muslim and neglected the rest of their culture. And so now when you say the word ethnic or you say the word tribe, most people from Europe don't think of themselves. No. 
<laughs> you know, and it's like you you come from a group of folks. You have an ethnic group, whether it would be, you know, Gaul or Saxon or Angle, you know, or Castilian. Yeah. You know, there's regions and those regions had ethnic groups with specific traditions and practices. And so that's what, you know, like, or, or you know, Bavaria, Austria, those were different places. It wasn't just one Germany. Yeah. You know, and then, and then, you know, the, even the, the whole purebred European thing is the Mongols were all ran through Germany. So we know that, you know, <laughs> that, you know, in terms of relations and what went on, so there's some Mongol relationship in there as well. So there's a lot that when you really look at history, it affords us a very, very different look in terms of what we want to see and what, we, what we've been taught to believe as opposed to what really is. And you see this hunger for spirit among so people who have been racialized as white because they don't see it in their own past, in their own history, in their own culture. Yeah. And it's there. It's there. They just don't, they just haven't, haven't chosen to look for it. Yeah. And until that happens, we're going you know, the world is going to be a very dangerous place. Because what is it that would you say is, is the result or what, what arises from our lack of connection with our own ancestral spirit, spirituality? Well, for me, it's, it's the, it's the story. Okay. So it's like the stories, like why the stories are important, be it the Norse stories or like the why Beowulf was taught. Like I read Beowulf, you know, and it was just the stories again. So now, Beowulf isn't important. Well, it's important just because it's Beowulf. But the other reason it's important is for the same reason that m many young people now will say, hey, I'm a Jedi. I'm a Sith. You know, that their story, when they have conflict, when they have challenges, when they have problems, they can look at this grand story as a way to help them interpret their life and life experience. And so our stories help us to interpret or bring meaning out of our relationship with what's happening in the environment in this current time. And so, and it's, all, it's very helpful if the heroes look like you, right? You know, and they come from you and, you, and there's, a real, there's a real identification there. And so you get the hero's journey or the hero's arc or the transformation of the, the, the tragic uh, villain who was not a, who is, is the hero actually, you know, and you see that or the redemption of the villain who was the hero, the villain, like a Darth Vader's arc from the prequels all the way through to the end. Yeah. You get a full picture of this, this person. Now imagine if that actually is, is, is really a part of someone's culture though. You see what I'm saying? So now it's not that I have to pretend to be a Jedi because now you got all these Jedi societies and Sith societies and people read this stuff like it's a part of their life and their culture. Imagine, and this is the thing, you don't even have to imagine. You could actually have that. You could have that. But because of the stigma that many have, they'd rather go after something fictional than deal with something real. Yeah. And maybe also because there would be um, a lot of 
there's a lot of pain in in the history as well right there's you, you got to deal with the reality of of our own history of colonization within europe and um what happened to our stories and all that yeah but i mean also everywhere we everywhere we've gone and this is us as as human beings you know this i mean yes they you know folks need to be responsible for their their actions However, with that, we want to be able to also say that Africans had issues with other Africans from different groups and different tribes. That's what made the the, uh, the slave trade possible. So <laughs> it wasn't just the you know the Europeans came up and were like, "Hey, you got some friends we could take." I mean, yes, they had a gun to their head and the other piece of it later on, but early on, it was like, "Oh, here you can take the, you know these prisoners of war," because the concept was prisoner of war, not necessarily slave. And the stigmas around it weren't as <coughs> hard pressed across generations as they came to be in in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Yeah, it's really I find it really interesting to hear, you know, you as an African American man telling, basically saying the importance of Europeans connecting with our own uh, history. I've had I've had Aboriginal people here say exactly the same thing to me. And you know, I go back, find your own stories. Go back to your country where you yes. come from, where your ancestors, yes. are, and connect with that. Not telling me to go back to my country as in go away, but just to go back to my roots, right? To find out where I actually come yes. from. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's hugely find, important. Yeah. What I find interesting. Go for it. Go for it. Is is that. Uh, the, the concept of universalism, right? There's this concept of universalism that we are all uh, humans, that we're maybe, depending on your perspective, we're all mm -hmm. uh, beings of God or we're all consciousness or we're all spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes from that perspective, there is a tendency to say, we want to move away from parochial focuses and from nationalism and from, all those things and we want to look at the commonality of humanity mm -hmm. but at the same time uh to me at least it seems you know that's and i used to be in that space right i used to be focused on that universalistic perspective and it's been over the course of my life that i've come back and realized that really a really important part for that is to connect with my unique ancestry and and origin and so on yes yes yeah Exactly. Well, for me, it's, it's like this. When I know that my calendar is different from your calendar and I have my holy days and my special days and I can celebrate them and you have yours and you're my friend, we can learn and celebrate with each other. But if you take me away from my culture and you don't really practice your days, you have some arbitrary shit that you did that you don't know is arbitrary, so you're not really wedded to them, but you make me have to practice them and I have to give up mine. Now you have this situation where, well, damn, he ain't even practicing what he what he said he wanted to do in the, in, in the first damn place. And I practice his shit better than he do. And so that creates a sense of the ch part of the challenge is that, you know, when, when colonization and imperialism came, the the victimized <laughs> became better Christians, better Muslim, better than the the imperial power, or you know what I mean.
yeah. <laughs> and you know that was the challenge you know it was was how, how that's the challenge how do i remember who i really am how do i uh How do I remember who I really am? What are the ways that I can really remember not just who I am, but really who you are? So that I tell my son, well, well how, when is our New Year's? I said, son, on their calendar, our New Year now comes around August, you know, mid-August. But most African, as an example, if you look at the, uh, Africa, Africa celebrates the New Year on its calendars between like June 8th through September 10th, somewhere in there in Africa, those are the, when they celebrate their New Year's because it's connected to your local environment, to your patterns, your practices. And the whole concept of January being the start of the year is a recent phenomenon, even for Europe. Because Europe used to start the year in April. That's where April 1st comes in and the whole April Fool's thing came about because a lot of the farming communities that dealt with the land still kept to that, you know, the, uh, after the spring equinox, the, you know, that, that first moon cycle around that, that would be the, the start of the new year. And so it was tied to the cosmos, tied to the, you know, and so it's a very different relationship that we have now that midwinter, we got, <laughs> we got a new year. You know, and people don't even think about it. This is, you know, just from, okay, July is named after Julius Caesar. You know, August is named after Augustus Caesar. Yeah. September is named after Septimus Severus, as well as being seven. Then you have October, both Octavian and October. Nova for November. Deca for December, December. So that already tells you the month that we call January is the 11th month. February is the 12th month. So, I mean, it's already in the cycle. <laughs> but, you know, we teach people to not even understand the world that they're living in. At the very basic level, I mean, if you don't know what time it is, if you don't know how to grow food and all these other basic things, how can you really know who you are and what you're going to be? And, you know, how can you fill the hole inside how do you deal with the pain? I mean, really, at this point, because now we're talking about just a calendar and how the cultures deal with time. And the universalists would say, you know, well, Diwali and a lot around this time, there's a lot of light celebrations because of the clarity of night and the darkness, and you can see the stars, and it's really a ma magnificent. However, if you don't know the cultures and know what's happening, it just looks like it's separate stuff happening for everybody. However, when you know your story and you know your, you could learn more about your story through hearing somebody else's share their version of their story. It's like, oh, is that why you do that? Oh, wow, what about this? And so now you got real questions. Well, that's similar to what I do. So there's even in the differences there's going to be commonality. There's going to be unifying elements. And I'll give you a fun story about that. So you know there's a relationship between uh, Buddhism and Catholic, Roman Catholicism. And it's, it's rooted through, there was a, 
you uh, a ruler or a warlord in India, you, depending on uh, your perspective, whichever you want to call. His name was Ashoka. So right around uh, 100, 100 uh, before, before the Common Era, he sent Buddhist emissaries to the area that we now know as Palestine. And they shared with a group there known as the Essenes different techniques and practices and whatnot. And some of those things, through the practice of the, uh, the organization of the Roman Catholic Church, they kept some of those traditions. So a few centuries later, maybe in the I have to check my notes, but maybe 17th, 18th uh, century, there was a Congress between um, Buddhism, Buddhists and Roman Catholics and some, monk, some monks. And so they brought some monks in and they brought some priests that served the people and they brought in some Buddhist monks and some Buddhist priests that served the people. They want them to share. <coughs> the priests on both sides stuck in their specific dogmas and were arguing back and forth about which was better, which was supreme, that and the other. But the monks, both on the Christian side and the Buddhist side, both noticed that, hey, you got prayer beads. Well, what do you use the prayer beads for? Oh, okay, that's similar. We use the prayer beads and we, we do this. Do you use it in your meditation? Yeah, we use it in our meditation too. And they had a wonderful time together because they were sharing techniques and practices, tangible, measurable things, as opposed to trying to say that, you know, we do this because this and this is why we do it. Okay, but why? So we don't have to worry about that. You know, the why isn't as important as we do it because it helps with this thing. The priests aren't concerned in, in the same way about the tangible, measurable acts with the prayer beads or with the particular uh, meditations because their role was to interface directly with the masses. So the priests were in this context more that like an intellectual, an intellect, the intellectual yes. head-based uh, spirituality, whereas yes. the monks in this story are really the embodied practice practitioners. Yes. Yes. And so if you're about the practice of it, you could talk to anybody. You could share with everybody. You can see the commonality in the particular, Particularity. So in, in other words, in the general, you can see the specific. And in the specific, you could see the general. And so I would the way I teach that is like, you know, uh, the, like the Tai Chi Chuan. You have the yin-yang symbol. It's not yin and yang because they're not separate. The yin-yang symbol. And so if you, there's that line in between that either yin nor yang. It's both. And that's our goal is to so that we can be all of it. I can be general and specific at the same time. And as you see, there's a little bit of yin in the yang side. There's a little bit of yang in the yin side. So you never are completely ever one of those. And so there's a balance. And our goal is to strive for that, that understanding, that knowledge, that wisdom, that understanding that allows us to build and sometimes destroy. Yeah, I, I, this is interesting. I didn't really expect us to, you know, talk about all the things we've talked about. <laughs> I would like to uh, sort of circle back to a couple of things. And um, certainly, uh, I think what would be really useful, or, you know, and I know we can't really do it justice now in, in this time, but just to touch on uh, that 
aspects of that revision of the place of Egypt in, um, in well, in, in spirituality and in, in, in Western philosophy and so on. And also, I think it would be really useful just to expand a little bit because I'm, I'm sure, you know, people listening might have some question marks around the suggestion of practices like yoga and Tai Chi going back to Africa because we're so, it's been so much part of our uh, enculturation, right, of linking them with, with the Eastern, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Eastern Asia um, to, yeah, to just yes. get a bit more detail on, on your understandings of those, those aspects, that history really. Certainly. Okay. So, so first off, uh, there was a gentleman that uh, it was called Damu or uh, Bodhidharma, depending on your tradition, who left India and went to uh, China as a Buddhist emissary uh, and uh, left. And uh, he went to Shaolin Temple and he taught uh, martial arts there. And he taught what became known as the, the Shaolin, the first set of the Shaolin martial arts, the 18, hand, 18 hands of the Lohan. That's how it became known. But uh, if you look at pictures of uh, Bodhidharma, he has the ear loop and he has the twisted knots on his hair, similar to the initial Buddha. Those are uh, East African hairstyles and ear. So it's like East African, Southeast African. Those are, those are cultural attributes that are found nowhere else. And so you're talking like a, dread, talking like a dreadlock, Afri- sort of like the dread, dreaded hair. Is that what you mean? A, they call them, they call, yeah, but they call them Bantu knots. Bantu? So let's see if I have knots. Bantu knots. So it's like, it's sort of like a lock twisted in on itself. Yes. Uh-huh. And so like, and so that was how uh, the Buddha uh, had his hair styled and the ear loops as well. That was not native to India. There's no, no folks in India do that even now. That's, that's African, you know, Southeast Africa. So we're talking about uh, Uganda, Rwanda, Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, that particular region that we call like the mountains of the moon, uh, the Maasai, that, you know, that's like part of their range, Kenya. So there's a range of places that actually folks have, you know, wear their hair and do the ears in, in that way. And so when you see that, and then you see these folks taking those traditions to, and, and in terms of even uh, the stick fighting, there actually are uh, symbols of the wrestling slash boxing on the temple of Montu at Beni Hassan in, uh, in Kemet that specifically identify specific martial movements. And the same thing goes for the, the, the yogic movements. You can find them as well on the temples. Right. And, and describing the movements. And, and that's separate from what you find in West Africa and among uh, the, uh, the Yoruba practitioners and others as well in Western Africa. And the cupping practices was not, they didn't use a cup in, in, in Africa, they used the actual horn. So they'd use the hollowed out part of a horn to yeah. do the same practice there and with uh, and maybe so, just- so there's there's a... I was just going to suggest explaining just for people. So cupping is uh, is kind of using a oh. suction. It's like a suction on the skin, mm-hmm. like a therapeutic. Uh, yes, practice. yes, like a therapeutic healing tool for uh, rejuvenation and restoration uh, and recovery, particularly for uh, you really find it among uh, 
very high level athletes that they'll use it to, to help them to aid the speed of their recovery. So, so we were doing that and then brain surgery. I mean, uh, I mean the actual God, Greek God of medicine, Asclepius, his name is Imhotep and he was the high priest of, uh, Ptah, and he was a uh, grand vizier to the pharaoh known as Zosier, who built the bent pyramid, the step pyramid. So, so, so this Inpute was the, the Egyptian name or the Kemet, Kemet, Imhotep was his name. Imhotep, he was a historical, a historical figure in, in Kemet, who's then appeared as the. Greek god of uh, medicine. Is that what he was saying? Yeah. Yes. Yes, he was deified. Yes. Uh huh. And he's actually in the Hippocratic Oath, I believe, to this day as well. Mm-hmm. So, and even so, like even the modern scalpel is based off of Imhotep's instruments. You know, which they were able to find in the temple and you know talk about. So, I mean, some of this stuff is just most people that haven't done this research don't have access to the information. So it's news. But the other piece is that there has been an active multi-century, multi-layered disinformation campaign to have Africa look like uh, it was completely ignorant and bereft of culture. When in fact it is the fountain from which the modern world has uh, emerged and the root of most of the things that we would consider in terms of university in terms of music spirituality like if you go to like one of the great basilicas in europe the diagram is based off of the comedic temples all they did was put a roof on them so when you walk into the the sense of awe the sense of joy that you feel when you're walking into the grand basilica or one of the grand cathedrals of europe is because they're using the architectural design of Africa to invoke that energy out of you and into you. Yeah. So even down to the musical scales, you know, chamber music, you know, this is not to take anything away from a particular group. It's just to acknowledge the relationship and that what really severed that relationship was the, the weaponized way that Christianity was used. You talk to the Greeks, they were quite clear about where they their information. Uh, the same thing with most of the Arab, the early Arab writings, you know, they know that all came out of Kemet. And so then what do you say? Could you just expand a bit on what you mean by weaponized use of Christianity? Well, the, the Roman empire, decided that it, they could convert and make it easier for them to, to control people if they uh, adopted this budding uh, cult that was then, we're talking about, uh, you know, seven, you know, right around the time of uh, Constantine and the other folks. So like the 300 uh, in the common era. And so they then converted as a way to make it easier for them to rule. And then they took that and by weaponized it, I mean that they used that as a way to unify and take over other cultures, other places. And that's how they took it to, that's how Europe got Christianity and also how it got uh, Judaism was that it went with the Roman empire. 
And so that it became the religion of the Roman Empire, and that's what started the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. They came together, in essence. And so by weaponized, I mean, that, that's I mean, the, the whole uh, doctrine of discovery, which said that the people on these lands, that when uh, Cristobal Colon, known as Columbus, you know, when he came, he had a papal bull that basically said that the land belongs to the Europeans because they're Christian. <laughs> and these other people, because they're not Christian, even though they're on the land, it's not theirs. And that was called the doctrine of discovery. And in most countries now where there's a history of imperialism or colonialism, you'll find that the legal basis for what they're doing is based on document of discovery to this day. And that has impacts for indigenous practices of spirituality. And, you know, in terms of, uh, like I say, I want to build a traditional... (laughs) a traditional uh, spiritual meeting place. Well, it's got to be up to code. (laughs) It's like we've been building this structure for thousands of years. Well, you can't do that anymore because we have codes now. And if it's not up to the code, we can't let you do those prizes unsafe. You're like, what? You know, so... Is this a, is so this there's a, this something really you're actually struggling with right now in, in trying to create it to build a to build a structure and having to jump through those hoops? Uh, not me, no, no, not me, no. But I know that there are certain indigenous groups that have had to uh, have that right. fight with the, the county and the cities in which they operate, and we've had to do some uh, some work to aid them in uh, coming to a, a mediation, actually, <laughs> around. Uh, you know, maybe we can get a variance or a set aside or some way to, to address this core issue that the, yeah. the concern is. Because otherwise, because the community, you know, the indigenous community looking at this clearly like this is, uh, you know, religious exemptions and you're trying to persecute them because of their practice of their indigenous practices. And they're just saying that, you know, well, based on our understanding of science, this is not sound. And we don't, you know, we're concerned about people's physical safety and middle ground in there somewhere because we all, because, you know, there's science as well as religion was used to oppress. And yeah. only those who've been oppressed know that and want to, and, and, and remember those days. And it's, you know, it's incumbent upon everyone to just acknowledge the harm. That's, that's the first step. You know, it's not like, I, you know, and there, there are ways to address these things. But the first thing is to help if you can. So that's, that's what I got, sir. Yeah. Do you need to wrap up in pool? Uh, I got a few more minutes. No, it's just my, my mother called me. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Yeah. So we're, we're doing okay so far. Yeah. Yes, okay. Well, I, I, I did want to say, I did say, I mean, look, there's so many branches and we certainly can't really cover all of those things. But there's one thing I would like to maybe end on because a lot of people listening to uh, this, this podcast are interested in things like uh, dream life, out-of-body experiences, connection with, uh, with extra-physical okay. consciousness. And we touched on that concept of dream time earlier in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, I know it's a big part of African culture. In fact, it's a big part of just about any culture other than Europe. And there's a reason for that. 
is is uh, to have awareness of your dreams, the, the idea that you can connect with ancestors, that you can gain knowledge, that you can learn, that you can understand new things while you're asleep. Um, and so what seems to have happened in Europe is uh, as part of the Christianization and in particular with the Inquisition um, and the really violent mm-hmm, impression mm-hmm. of of anything that wasn't dogmatic uh, and priest-based kind of spirituality, there seems to have been a big mm-hmm. psychological block perhaps put in our yes. consciousness, which we've tried to impose then. I think we've gone around and tried to impose that yes. on everybody else. Uh-huh. Um, yes. So, yeah, so I would just maybe touch on your thoughts on that, on your, your, the, maybe the importance of that, that those experiences have for you and and that interface between... African understandings and and the European ones. Definitely. I I would say that, you know, it's been a huge deal of importance for me. Uh, I'll say that like, um, I am such, was so into martial arts growing up that when I first started learning this system that uh, not always in your dreams either. Sometimes it can occur during your meditations Sometimes in the moments that you're not present in the day, you can have visits. Folks will come if you're open. And that, you know, you can learn the practices to become open. And then you have people who are naturally have proclivities to be open. And then you have folks who have taken plant medicines outside of ritual or outside of the prescribed methods and have kind of blown the hinges off those doors. And so those doors are open more frequently. And so some folks, you know, and so again, you know, as an example, you know, there, I had a student who, uh, whose family declared them missing and they had, did not come to me, but one of the friends of the family knew that the student was, was a student of mine, this person. And they say, well, have you heard from this person? And I was like, well, they're not missing. I'm like, what do you mean? I said, well, I just talked to the, that person a few weeks ago and I, you know, through our connection, I know that they're here physically on the planet. I know that they're well. I've already, you know, I'll put the word out, but I need you to understand that when I put the word out, it's a lot different than just me sharing this on on Facebook and Instagram. They're like, well, so so again, so I said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to go and do some altar work. Then after that, I'm going to talk with the, the sun and the moon and the cosmos and the wind and I have some bird friends and I'm going to carry this message. So whoever sees him first is going to convey the message that he needs to physically call me. So in this particular situation, when, you know, that the next day, you know, the young man picks up the phone is like, uh, what's up? I'm like, okay, first off, I just need to know that you're safe. I'm safe and that you're good. I'm good. Okay. Now what you got to say, he's like, um, why do I feel like I'm being followed? Like I'm being watched and what's happening. Like, I feel like somebody's stalking me. I said, okay, look, that's going to stop. Everything's good. Everything's cool. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, I, you know, I'm just sharing this to kind of reflect like a practical example. Okay. Now he's, this is a person who not like the average person who is, doesn't meditate every day or so again, the, the particular practices that we do make it so that when you're observant, like I, if I miss you, like, like now people outside of their household aren't able to hug a loved one. So what I do is that, you know, when the sun is rising here in the morning, 
I think about specific people and I'm like, please, you know, Father, Son, when you see such and such, carry this hug to them that they may feel this hug and may feel, you know, enlivened and uplifted as if I hugged them for real. And that person on the other end of that hug will feel it. And so I train my students in how we can then communicate in, in this particular way through the practice of our meditation system, through the practice of our martial art, which increases the awareness, it expands the energetic sphere of the physical body. And some of our meditation tools aid you, one, in connecting the subtle bodies and having more control with how you use the subtle bodies within, within the finer bodies, we'll say, more subtle. And as a result of that, you know, strengthening of the will through the practices, it affords you an opportunity to, to take a more active role, say, like in your dream or your dream time. So you can be active in that. So it's not just uh, an ancestor coming and visiting you. You can actually engage in dialogue and conversation because we've strengthened the will and we found ways to connect in that way. And another example I'll give you is I used to travel a lot more. And so I was, I was a single father. And so I was talking to my children, my daughters, my first, my older two daughters. And I was saying to them, look, if you ever miss me, if you ever need to talk to me, all you have to do is step outside and talk to, and ask the moon to, to contact me. And so my mom got real pissed because she didn't, um, <laughs> she wasn't real happy with me in the traditions. However, my, my, my youngest daughter and my oldest daughter did so. And so uh, give you an example. So, so what happened was I was traveling and my youngest daughter had had a situation, youngest at the time. And so I called her mother. I'm like, what's wrong with my child? She's like, well, what do you mean? I said, how, do you, how did you know? It's like she just got stung. Is she allergic to? It's like, no, she's not allergic. She's fine. But, you know, I, you know, she, called, you know she called out to me. And so I just want to make sure that she's okay. You know, and then there are times, so when my daughters then recognize, oh, dad's not bullshitting. This stuff, this thing actually works. Okay. <laughs> so my eldest, you know, comes to me and says, you know, dad, um, but mom, you know, mom doesn't always reply in real time. What's that about? I said, you know, look, everybody's skill with this is different. There's nothing wrong with your mom. Your mom just doesn't do it in the same way. So look, ask your mom if she had a dream about you or about this thing because it doesn't come to everyone the same way. And particularly for those that aren't necessarily meditating or doing the kind of energy work and cultivation to expand awareness and receptivity. And so, you know, my daughter was eight at the time. So that's kind of tough to tell, you know, your eight year old child who is aware of kind of her place in the universe and can use these kind of tools that her mom is, is uh, not as advanced and to deal with her regret at the time. But it was like, no, it's nothing wrong with your mom. You know, it's just, it's just everyone is different. And, you know, you need to understand that just because everybody's different, it's not a bad or good or bad thing. It's a different thing. And right now, you know, you have an opportunity because you're young and I'm helping you to move through some of these things better. You can do it better than some other folks. But if you don't keep up the practice, you know, you'll end up like, like your mom later on too. Because what happens is that the body, the, 
the energetic pathways in the body, almost like the the veins in the mouth, you know, like over time they start to shrink as you get older. And so if you don't use them, particularly for the energetic pathways, you don't use them by the time you're 50, get them open and moving, then, you know, you you, you pretty much are kind of stuck with what you got for the rest of your life. And so it'll probably just be dreams or it could be like a gnawing feeling in the back of your mind around something. So it, it varies. And I think that's the best way that I, that I could say it, that the tools are designed to strengthen your connection. Uh, we also use a particular way to do that that I like to call stalking yourself. Stalking yourself. So I'll leave, I'll leave with this. Yes. Yes. And so that you, you, you communicate, now you may have seen it, but you ask the subtle energy bottle that is your eternal witness to watch you. And so to remind you of particular behaviors you want to release. So like for my students, I'll say, you know, uh, you know, you want to keep your butt tucked. So, you know, not just when you're in class, but in general, so to alleviate the lower lumbar tension. So just, you know, program, ask yourself, tell yourself, this is what you need yourself to do. And then over time, you'll find yourself, some folks would be so stressed that this shoulder will be up all the time, even if they're not carrying anything. And so what happens is when you talk to that subtle body, a subtle energy, it's like, oh, hey, oh, God, I forgot that was up. I can feel it now. And it, it starts to help you in those subtle ways. And then you can expand that to other ways that you can move on or connect. And depending on your role in your, the family, your role in other areas would then determine which ancestors may not come to you. The other pieces, like I said, I got visited by martial arts masters from people and stuff. I, I didn't even know who these folks were. They just started coming. You know, I'm like, I couldn't even get a good night's sleep for like, and here's this new form I want to show you. I was like, oh, sh- guys, gentlemen, I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, God, thank you. But I, I <laughs> you I'm know, exhausted. this, uh, please, I have children. <laughs> please. Yes. I, you know, I, I would like to sleep tonight and not learn, not have, not see this form. If that's all right with y'all. <laughs> and so, you know, the goal is to be open, to be honest. And at some level, you don't want to be so open that you don't have control over the doorways and boundaries. And that's the challenge of a lot of people. They want to be able to go out. And, you know, you don't want to uh, abuse the plant medicines and substances. You want to use them for the reason that they are. You want to make sure that if you're using any plant medicine to augment where you go, that you have the appropriate sanction from the culture that uses that to do so. Because you got folks now talking about ibogaine as a as a therapy for uh, people with depression, and that's not what it was used for. Mm. You, you know, same thing you're talking ayahuasca. about iboga. Is that, I, I say iboga. You say yes. ibogaine. Yeah, iboga. yeah, yeah, iboga. Yeah, yeah, the tabernacle iboga. Exactly. Yeah, you got people taking iboga, and it's like uh, you know that's a rites of passage uh, substance. That's a, yeah. It sounds a particular sounds, ritual. It sounds substance. very powerful. It's not, yeah, it's not just something you take. No, yeah, I mean that's that's a whole other topic, and and I'm it is you know, but I'm I, I share depends. your uh, sort of con- I'm very wary about uh, plant plant medicines of all types. I think that they've become very. Um, I've had I've had I've had a person on the podcast who's been arguing really well, and he's he's a very um, I'd say responsible advocate for 
the mature use of substances to um, help us, you know, mm -hmm. grow and deal with death and deal with depression and all those things. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the use has to be really well supervised and con in the context, as you say, an awareness of the history of those substances and yeah. But um, I love I love your the thing I love about I, your you know, I'd also like I like the work. Oh no, you go. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, sir. I was kind of circling back to what you said. Um, uh, what I love about your uh, the way you describe your practice of of involving the moon and the sun to uh, connect you with uh, loved ones and just people you want to connect with. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of uh, it's it's the connectedness of that, right? To actually remind ourselves that we're part of this mm -hmm. bigger system, that we're part of nature, that we're um, all connected through that. Uh, it makes it very practical. It makes it, it, it sort of opens it up. I think it, I can see it be very useful for people to, maybe some people who find it uh, difficult to just conceptualize even thinking about the telepathic connection it adds something else. It adds another dimension. Mm-hmm. Mm. It does. I mean, because you have to remember that all, like this tool we're using right now is really just an augmented version of what I've been talking about. Yeah. It's true, you know, too. so that we could communicate across space and time. You know, and, you know, if you know the, you know, the right uh, frequency and vibration, you know, we can just walk into each other someplace and you never know. You know, I may be in Adelaide one day. <laughs> well, you know, so my goal is to get down there. Once, once, man, once this COVID is over, man, I'm, I'm going to be all over the world. Yeah. I promise you. <laughs> I'm getting out. I, I, I can't, I got, I got to. Yeah. Well, if you come down this way, you're always welcome. There's a, uh, I, I'm coming. I'll, I'll, I will let you know when I'm on the way. <laughs> that is real talk because I, I have never been to Australia. I have a couple of colleagues down there that I want to see, and, I, and it's a big place. So I want to see it, and then I want my my travel buddies, I want my son and my, my to come with me. So there's a few places I really want to see and have him see. Yeah, and love to come hang out with you. Yeah, no, that would be would be really a pleasure. And um, it was lovely to talk to you today, Inpu. I really um, appreciate the breadth. I, th I feel like we've just touched, uh, you know, obviously just touched on such a small part of, of the topic and also the ex literally encyclopedic knowledge that you've acquired in your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I would like to think that folks got at least some practical application of the ways in which that uh, uh, we approach life. You know, I like to say and make a consistent commitment to a lifestyle change. Because a lot of times when we're talking about even modern use of these plant medicines, we're talking about using it in the context of this cis-heteropatriarchal settler colonial capitalist system. And so it's not that I'm depressed, it's that I'm in this system. <laughs> this system is crazy making. And so if we get people into a place that's not this system, then they're not crazy. They don't need this particular medicine from another culture. 
They can, and that's why it's important to know who you are and where you're from, because your medicines work great for you, but they may not work so great for me. Now, if I'm dying or if I'm really bad off, they can be helpful, but I may actually need some things differently than you might need some things, even though we're human, the same. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.